This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Joy Detman is known for her family saga stories, and she's given us another big book, over 400 pages of a big family. Welcome back, Joy. Thank you, Jan. So, it's Joy, good to be here. Good. So, Joy, how big is the Smythe-Owen family? Uh, Mavis and Henry have 12 children. Only one of them is a daughter. So, Laurie has 11 brothers, older and younger. So, Laurie is number six. The two oldest, Donnie and Martin, have moved away and in relationships. Then there's Vinny, who's he's, he's big. He's head and shoulders above his classmates. Nick, with a caliper on his leg. And then there's Eddie and Alan, the twins. They're number seven and eight, just a bit younger than Laurie. And they've had a very different family upbringing. They have. They were born with holes in their hearts. And um, Mavis was not the typical mother. Mavis has mental issues and she couldn't handle the twins. So her sister, her, her city sister, took them when they were about 18 months old and she raised them. She raised one of them to the age of nine and the second one, Eddie, to the age of 12. And when Eddie did come back to this family, he loved the freedom, the bushland, the river down the end of the street, and the noise and busyness of the family. The children organised their own lives. There were rules and routines for shopping and cooking and eating and dishes. Why didn't their mother participate in all of this? There is a, um, a, a back story to this. When the father died, Mavis, the mother, was, of course, in receipt of a pension and allowances for each of her children. Given access to a large amount of money and a mobile phone, uh, while the children barely survived, she spent her nights on the phone ringing up taxis and having them deliver her takeaway and cigarettes. So uh, something had to be done about that. In the Hope Flower, Laurie is in charge of the pension. How that comes about is a part of the backstory. So she's, she's close to 40 stone in weight. She's enormous. She can't lift whatever. And when Eddie comes back into the family, he says, we can do something about this. And over the next couple of years, they are in control and they organise what she's lost. But, of course, she loses so much weight that, well, from page number eight, how about Joy Detman reading, please? Mavis had developed a severe case of deflated balloon syndrome. Every inch of her had crumpled and sagged. Her upper arms were swinging bat wings. Her cheeks and had sagged down to a jowl. Her jowls to her neck, her neck to her boobs, and boobs to her belly, and the belly to her knees. Her bum had to be seen to be believed. 
The last time she'd showered, she'd slipped on the wet vinyl while stepping out of the bathtub, which meant that Laurie had seen the lot up close and very personal. Hauling her tonnage around for so many years hadn't done Mavis's joints a lot of good. Once she was down, there was no way she could get herself up. Laurie hadn't been able to get her up. She'd ended up dressing her on the floor so that she could call Vinnie in to lift her. And clothing her had been like clothing a wet jellyfish. Mavis hadn't showered since. There were consequences to that. The heat caused her to sweat. Sweat irritated the skin disease she'd developed beneath the worst of her sags, which meant she spent half of her life scratching and didn't care who was staring at her when she scratched or where she scratched. (laughs) Oh, dear, that was a problem, being overweight and now having so much excess skin. She still didn't socially interact. So we mentioned that she wasn't a particularly good mother. The kids all knew to be wary of her. Mavis physically hurt the children at times, but she emotionally hurt them by giving them all pretty horrendous nicknames. Son number three, Greg, was Mavis's favourite child. Definitely not Laurie's favourite brother. Where is he now? Um, I'm afraid that Greg has been arrested for uh, manslaughter. He was driving a stolen vehicle and he collided with a another mm. and killed the mother and her 16-year-old daughter. Mm. So Greg is finally safe in jail yeah. as far as Laurie is concerned. He's not, or she hopes he won't get out for 20 years or so. Absolutely. Well, now, there's other brothers, Jamesy with his crooked smile, Neil with carrot hair, Timmy, but the youngest, Matty, is only four years old. So why don't the kids or even the neighbours report Mavis as a bad mother? Oh, she was reported. This is part of the backstory. The children, I think, Laurie in particular, she has seen uh, what happened to her family after Henry died. The two oldest brothers left home. One of them married in a hurry. The other one went miles away. Vinnie and Greg took off for Melbourne. Vinnie was only 14 years old. She has already seen half of her family split asunder. She knows exactly what's going to happen if child welfare step in and take the children. The young ones, of course, will be taken away. She doesn't want this. These are Henry's children, and she's going to keep them together. For her sake, I think, and also for Henry's sake, not for Mavis's. No. Well, Eddie, now Eddie was the one who came up with the idea of starving Mavis to lose weight and he uses, he comes up with another idea and he has his own income, does Eddie, because of his foster foster mother. Laurie calls him Mr Fix-It. So what does he organise for Mavis? He doesn't have, he attempts to 
to access his money to see if a cosmetic surgeon can do something about her deflated balloon syndrome, but is able to well, is able to manage that by appealing to the local doctor and to a uh, a gentleman that he has seen on television. Yes. So while Mavis is in hospital, the family do some more home renovations and Laurie goes to her favourite op shops to buy clothes for her mother and even a bra. Mavis comes back home with a new body. She can wear jeans for the first time in 20 years and is proud of a body image. Laurie, being the only daughter, hopes for a mother-daughter relationship. But is it going to be possible? Oh, oh, oh. the title comes from something their dead father, Henry, said coming home from an orchid show. Laurie asked him why he'd spent $30 on what looked like dead stuff. Quote, he patted her head and said that money was never wasted when you spent it on hope. And that's how the, the title, The Hope Flower, came about. Is it, Joy? That's correct, yes. A couple of places in the novel where Laurie speaks about hope, someone, one of them speaks about hope. So I think that two have survived as they have, then they had to have hope that things were going to get better. Well, Laurie, at year 10, is studying Pygmalion, the story of My Fair Lady, and Laurie has the lead role playing Eliza. That story is all about change. And this is also the story of Laurie and her life. And will it duplicate her role at school? Is it possible for it to happen in the Smith-Owen family? Joy, you've used dude a lot. There's the young dude, the old dude, the cranky dude. Was that there for a particular reason, the use of dude? No, it wasn't. It's um, a couple of my grandchildren uh, used to be keen on that, and I just wanted to give her something, yeah, something a little bit lorry. Okay. Well, when there is a volatile mother, the children raise themselves away from the gaze of the authorities. But when their mother emerges, will it be for hope or hell? And that's in Joy Detman's the hope flower. Thank you, Joy. Thank you, Jan. And now, listen to David as he chats with his author. During times of difficulty, we often find comfort and solace in the company of others or in literature, art and music, or, as in Michael McGurr's case, in the ideas and wisdom to be found in philosophy. Michael's latest book, Ideas to Save Your Life, Philosophy for Wisdom, Solace and Pleasure, is both a journey through the history of philosophy and a contextualising with contemporary and personal references. So, Michael, welcome to 3CR. It's wonderful to be here, David. Thank you for having me. It is going to be difficult to tackle each and every philosopher that you introduce us to in this book. They range from the ancient Greeks to uh, current Australian voices, but... The intriguing thing for me is the contextualisation. You give us real-life situations and examples, and one of the most challenging is actually in the introduction. 
Suicide, in my experience, seldom comes at the end of a process of serious rational thought. It is more likely to be the opposite, an unravelling of the thread that sews all our thoughts together to create a purposeful and beautiful person. You provide us with examples of student suicide, and that's very confronting. Well, thank you, David, and you're certainly jumping in at the deep end, but philosophy is a pool that has no shallow end, David. So let's look. I came at this book from several directions, and one is as a high school teacher. And I had one dreadful year where three kids, all aged 16, 17, in my homeroom made attempts on their own life. You know, thankfully, none of them completed the act. So I was very blessed, but I did get very wrapped up in their story. And teachers disagree about all sorts of things they'd be united by this investment in the health and happiness of their students. You want to see your students thrive. So I, and I'm not so callous as to say that anybody um, endangers themselves because of their philosophy. It's more that having a way of constructing meaning in the world or purpose in the world, actually, well, it's a safety net in a way. It's a place to be a self. And I think if you want to not be a self, that's pretty sad. And philosophy gives you a way to understand what a self is and how a self can be creative and wonderful. So my angle on philosophy was extremely practical. I'm not an analytical philosopher. I'm not a philosopher who does fine tuning on the meaning of little tiny things. For me, I have a dear friend who is a, a very fine philosopher who... Uh, thinks of philosophers as tradies. They're basically doing a job. They're making something. They're fixing something. But it's also so, a way of approaching thought. It's not providing answers. It's an approach yeah, to thought. Yep. The very engagement with uh, the big picture, even if it doesn't bring you to a particular resolution, is uplifting, you know, and enriching. We often get that expression in the advice industry. You know, there's plenty of people in the advice industry and life coaches and all this. And they always say, don't overthink it. The last three words in this book are don't underthink it. Because, you know, people just reduce life to a series of cliche statements of the obvious motherhood statements recycled over and over again well you know i reckon there's a lot of uh, to use uh william james's expression there's a lot of zest in scratching a bit deeper now one interesting thing here is a lot of the philosophers you introduce us to were in fact very troubled individuals wittgenstein was benighted by a famously difficult personality. Mm. Simone Weil regularly abandoned comfortable accommodation to find mm. worse lodgings. It seems a lot of them were looking for ways of addressing their own frailties. It's funny. Or... Look, I hadn't thought about this before you mentioned it, David, but the philosophers in this book, they're not a particularly jolly bunch, are they? I mean, there's a few who are really happy. Rumi was extremely happy. And I, and I think Iris Murdoch, in her own way, was pretty content, you know, as she went along. And... Wittgenstein, whom I love as a philosopher, was a most troubled gentleman. Same applies to Kierkegaard, who I love as a philosopher, but he, he, he had a gift for buggering up his own life. Absolute gift. And yeah, there's a number. But you know, philosophy is no guarantee of 
happiness in a trivial sense. It's just an ongoing journey with the spade in hand to, you know, dig under the surface. But it's the enjoyment of that journey. Yeah. It's not finding yeah, an yeah. answer. It's that uh, journey that is important. One of the places I start this book is with a bit of a go at, you know, the idea of well-being. Well-being is great and, you know, we all want, especially young people, anybody to uh, feel content and peaceful. Yeah, we uh, had a friend who used to be the chief financial officer up at Chadston, which is an enormous shopping centre. And he would tell us the amount of uh, shop space that was going over to the well-being industry. And that the whole trouble with well-being, it becomes very self-focused and mindful and all these sorts of things, which is fundamentally about me being the hub of meaning in my own world. And that's very limited. That actually, is a, it's, a, it's a dead end street. And I try to move the language of well-being to the language of well-finding. I used to always ask my kids, where is the well in your village? Where is the place that the community gathers and from you which you draw water? And metaphorically, where is the well in your village? So to move from well-being to well-finding is a shift from a focus on oneself as the centre of meaning to a focus on what's beyond yourself. Interestingly enough here, you personalise a lot of this uh, philosophy. There is a an undercurrent or a backstory to this book, which is you on your own journey, it would seem, because uh, it's a product of your unemployment, shall we say, or a change of situation, and you connect it with your own father's story or what you remember of your mm, father's yeah. story, and even comment, uh, there's a comment from your wife about how you deal with grief. So it seems yeah. you were going through this journey yourself in putting this book together. Very much so. And that was challenging for me. I think the great philosophers really help you get a handle on, you know, who, who you happen to be. Uh, it's interesting. There was a whole raft of philosophers uh, in both Europe and the United States after World War II. And I was astonished reading A.C. Grayling's History of Philosophy because he knew most of these people, they'd all fought in World War II. They had all been to war. And not one of them ever brought that experience into their philosophy. Now, I don't get that. I absolutely don't get that. Whereas Martha Nussbaum, who is a contemporary, very fine, wonderful philosopher from the United States, her philosophy is, so, for example, her book on anger deals with the rise of Donald Trump and the Trump presidency. So that's something contemporary in her world and deals with her own anger there. But she roots this back, and for Martha Nussbaum, always back in classical Greek philosophy, with which she's very up to date and so on. And it's a, it's a discussion between the grand tradition and what I'm experiencing now, and in her case, quite political. Now, in my case... I read this book at a time I was struggling to find a job. Um, there were other things happening in my life. I, I reached 60 and um, I, I'm just feeling, hmm, golly, what's, what's it all about, you know? So I brought, that, I, brought those, I brought those insecurities to the book. There's also another aspect of you in this book, which I relate to. Um, Plotinus well knew the word animal and animation derived from the root mm. 
anima meaning breath but also soul you love to ground things in the very word itself and find its origin that seems to be a little trait of yours it is and i think if you find if you find the root stock of your language you can understand it and grow stuff on it it's just like planting find the root stock and I know it's not trendy to say, but 55% of the English language, the English language is the most subtle thing that the human race has ever created. The other interesting thing about the English language, though, and the argument that actually comes up in the English language course of the VCE, does the language shape how we think in terms of determine what we can think, or have we created the language in order to think, and that is a philosophical conundrum, which I don't think we'll answer here today. Well, as they say, as they say in uh, rowing, it's an either-or situation. Actually, it's these two things are not mutually exclusive. But Wittgenstein put the question: Can you have a thought that you cannot put into words? And his famous phrase was: "The limits of my language are the limits of my world." But he actually came to doubt that himself. A number of the philosophers I'm really interested in are operating at the edge of language. So Pythagoras was one of these. Uh, Rumi was one of these. Wittgenstein himself was one of these. That there are things just at the fingertips of what you think you can say. And this is where a mystical philosopher is. You know that there is a mysterious area where you can put it into words, but it's not quite right. Um, Another interesting thing, when we get into some of these uh, individual philosophers, and we haven't got time to to touch on them all, we might touch on one or two, talking about on the edge, the clarification here, Pythagoras, I always thought of him as a mathematician, but he's a mystic, he's seeing numbers as a pattern, which enables him to see the shape of the world. His interest was not numbers. His interest was really uh, beauty and order. Now, what we learned at school, Pythagoras theorem was around before Pythagoras, but it was owned by that community because it wasn't a sublime expression of, of order. But Pythagoras philosophy begins with music and with his realization or that community's realization that if you put your finger on a particular place in a string, it creates a more tuneful note than at other places. And this is a relationship of the material thing, namely the string or the instrument, and an immaterial thing, namely harmony, sound. And for Pythagoras, numbers are the point at which the material and the immaterial come close together, and that creates patterns and meaning and so on. Pythagoras was enormously influential on Plato and on uh, Islamic philosophy. Hmm. And uh, Islamic philosophy tends to be Pythagorean. Another interesting one, which is, I'm afraid, where we're going to have to end the discussion, Socrates and cheese. I suppose I use cheese as a sort of an image in the book, as a difference between uh, cheese that is made as a result of a process and cheese that's made as a result of a tradition. Now, processed cheese comes in those little plastic slices, no flavour. Cheese made as a result of a tradition, messy, smelly, gorgeous. Similarly, contemporary education is suffering from too little tradition and too much process. Yeah. Sometimes seems in danger of forfeiting reason 
and pandering to mobs, which actually sums up what I see as happening in a lot of educational institutions where we're all about churning students through a factory yeah. and processing them for results and not acquainting them with the delights yeah. of the thinkers of the yeah. age and the literature Look, of the age. I know. Yeah, and teaching has become so, in some respects, schools, not teaching schools, have become very bureaucratic. We, we understand the reasons, you know, and some of the reasons are perfectly good and understandable. But I still take great hope from the teachers who manage to just do that paperwork in a, you know, compliant, minimal way. But in the classroom, they read kids like a book. They inspire. Those teachers are still there, David. And I just hope that people entering the teaching profession get a chance to be sort of not too boxed in and to actually, you know, enter the imaginative world of young people and just love it. Well, folks, I've been talking to Michael McGurr. His book is Ideas to Save Your Life Philosophy for Wisdom, Solace and Pleasure. There's much more we could have talked about in terms of the philosophies covered, but it's a text publishing release. So, Michael, thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, David, thank you. And thanks to 3CR. It's an oasis in a desert. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.